You're listening to a presentation of The Rising. We're always encouraged to know God is changing lives through this ministry. If you have a story to share of how God is working in your life, please let us know and send an email to stories at wearetherising.com. Now, prepare your heart and mind to hear a word from God. Well, I went to, uh, I went to Bible college between the years of 2001 and 2005 at Roanoke Bible College. It's now called Mid-Atlantic Christian University. It's a small school, just over 200 people in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. And um, I graduated from there with a bachelor degree in Bible, just in case you were wondering. And uh, just in case you were wondering, what can you do with a bachelor degree in Bible? The answer uh, is nothing, nothing at all. No, I mean, you could do what I'm doing now, but you don't even need a degree to do this. But, but I do have a degree, just in case uh, you were wondering. But I remember when I was in Bible college, I knew everything. I mean, when I was a teenager, I knew everything, right? Like, I felt so sad for my parents because they were just so dumb. And I just thought, if my parents knew half as much as I did, then they'd be all right. See, I knew everything when I was a teenager. Anybody else with me? Yeah. But... But now that I've gotten older, I discovered I didn't know a whole lot. And when I was in Bible college, you know, again, I just thought I knew everything. And oftentimes people would get into these arguments and these discussions and debates in the dorm room, and they'd be sitting around talking about all kinds of theological stuff that would bore you half to death. And so I won't get into it. But they'd be debating about it. And sometimes I'd get involved in these debates. And then I realized none of it mattered. Like, we're sitting there talking about, is it dispensational premillennialism or is it amillennialism? Who cares? Doesn't matter. Doesn't change your life at all. And then, and then I stopped getting in those debates. I stopped getting in those arguments. And, and I just realized that, that knowing some of that stuff didn't really change my life. What really mattered was, did I live out what I knew? And, you know, now here I am over 10 years removed from being in Bible college. And as I look back, I think back to some of the stuff that I debated and argued and really thought. And, you know, I don't even believe some of that stuff now. And some of the stuff that I didn't believe then, I believe now. Because as I've met new people, as I've had more experiences, as I've gone through life, I've, I've discovered that the black and white solid world that I lived in has now become this gray, soupy mess of um, all sorts of things. Really, I guess what I'm trying to say is the older I get, the less I know. Is anybody else with me? The, the older I get, the, the less I, I know. And, and, and really, if you look back at my life, I mean, it's only been 34 years. I am 34, right? I mean, is it 34 or 35? I forget. Okay. I'm, you're a young guy. Jesus didn't live till 33. That's it. So, uh, you know, sometimes people say, oh, you're so young. I don't know. But, but, uh, hopefully you can follow my leadership, because if, if, if not, if you think I'm too young to lead you, you'd think Jesus was too young to lead you too. Anyway, um, but, but what I've discovered as I look back over my short 34 years is that my life has been this, this journey of intersecting, interweaving faith and doubt. Uh, that, that I've experienced faith and doubt, that, 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 that really there's nothing I'm 100% certain on. There's nothing I really know, but I have great faith, but then at times... There's time where I have doubt. And really this experience proves right the words of Paul Tillich, uh, the great German-American philosopher and theologian who said doubt is an element of faith. Rabbi Eric Yaffel wrote that doubt does not undermine belief. It is central to belief. And even the great spiritual giant Mother Teresa who dedicated the majority of her life to serving the poor in India wrote this, where is my faith? 
Even deep down, right in, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. My God, how painful is this unknown pain? It pains without ceasing. I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd in my heart and make me suffer untold agony. So many unanswered questions live within me. I'm afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. If there be a God, please forgive me. You know, I've had people tell me that they went to church before and they were looked down on because of their doubts. Some people stopped going to church because they doubted because they thought doubt was the opposite of faith. But I want to let you know this morning, if you've ever had doubts or you have doubts even now, you're in good company because you're not the only one. Even Mother Teresa had doubts. Today we're continuing this series called God for the Rest of Us, and, and the title for my sermon, if you would take a moment to write it down in your note card if you hadn't gotten it already, is God for the Doubters. God for the Doubters. I wanna, I wanna explain to you, and I wanna show you today how God uh, is not just for the doubters, but he loves you even in your doubt. What fascinates me so much is how God treats people who doubt in the scriptures. He doesn't shun them, he doesn't treat doubt with distance, but instead he meets people in the midst of their doubt and brings them to an even greater faith. And so what I wanna to do today is I wanna share some stories with you from the scriptures and then I wanna give you a little bit of evidence to help you uh, in your doubt. Uh, but first, some stories. Now, when I say stories, uh, I'm not talking about like made up fairy tale stories, but I'm talking about actual events that actually happened to actual people in actual history. When we read the scriptures, what we're reading is actual events that really took place, real people writing about real situa situations that really took place. And so 2,000 years ago, Jesus lived on this earth and uh, he had a cousin named John. His name was John the Baptist. And uh, when, when people refer to John and, and call him John the Baptist, uh, it's not like John was a Baptist, like it's not talking about denominational stuff here, but it's saying like John baptized people. So he, he went around, he baptized people, he dunked people in water, he immersed people, he plunged people in water when they wanted to come to faith in God and have a relationship with him. So it's, it's like John the baptizer, John the immerser, John the plunger. And... Um, because sometimes people don't know that. They think, oh, John the Baptist. So like there's a John the Baptist and Sally the Presbyterian and Kathy the Catholic. No, this isn't like a, a denominational thing. So John baptized people and he was actually cousins with Jesus. They were about six months apart in age. And uh, John was preaching uh, to people saying, turn to God, repent, stop following your way, follow God's way. And um, at the age of 30, uh, Jesus comes onto the scene and he goes to his cousin who's out there baptizing and he has this crowd of people. Jesus comes onto the scene and John says, the whole reason I'm here, my whole ministry is about making way for the Son of God. And when Jesus walks up, he says, and here he is. And he ushers Jesus in. So John being the cousin of Jesus, no doubt grew up hearing the story of Jesus' virgin birth. He got to spend time with Jesus. He saw how he, how he acted when he was younger. And then he tells people, my whole ministry, the reason I'm here is to make way for the Son of God, and here's the Son of God. Jesus comes onto the scene, and Jesus says, all right, John, baptize me, and John baptizes him. And when he does that, the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. The scriptures record this, that as soon as Jesus is baptized, God's Spirit descends on Jesus. Everyone can see this. And then God speaks audibly from heaven, and John even hears this, and the voice says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So John gets all this evidence that Jesus really is the Son of God. There's a time later in his ministry 
where some of John's followers are abandoning him and following Jesus. People go to John, they say, hey, what do you think about this? And John says in John chapter three, verse 30, he says, he must become greater, I must become less. By the way, this is a great verse for you to start to memorize. He must become greater, I must become less. God must become greater, I must become less, because this life is not about me. This life is about God becoming greater in my life and me becoming less so that people can see God through me. He must become greater, I must become less. So John has experienced all this stuff. He's, he's heard the stories of Jesus' virgin birth. He's grew, grown up with Jesus. He baptized Jesus. He saw God's spirit descend on Jesus. He heard God's voice speak and say, this is my son. He even tells people, follow Jesus, don't follow me. And then John ends up in prison. And the reason why John is in prison is because uh, he tells the king about some of the immorality he has in his life. He says, hey, king, you're doing some of this stuff. You shouldn't be doing it. The king doesn't like it. So he puts John in prison. So John's in prison, and he's wasting away there. And then, you know, when you're left alone with your thoughts, you can start to doubt. And this is what happens with John. John starts to doubt. He starts to wonder if Jesus really is the Son of God, if he really is who he said he is, if he really is the, the man that he was telling everyone to follow. And there's probably several reasons for John's doubts. One, one is most likely because he's in prison, because in his plan, it didn't end up him being in prison. He never thought in a million years probably he'd end up in prison, but here he is in prison. So he's wondering, okay, what, what's going on here? But, but the second is he hears about some of the stuff Jesus is doing. Uh, it's in Matthew 11 too. It says, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. So let me, let me explain this to you real quick. He heard about the deeds of, of what Jesus was doing, and it caused him to doubt. And most likely, it wasn't because he heard about all the good stuff Jesus was doing, but he heard about some of the stuff that didn't seem to quite match up. See, John lived an ascetic life. He, he made his own clothes, he didn't really indulge in food, he didn't drink alcohol, and um, then here comes Jesus. And he says Jesus is the Son of God, but Jesus lived a life very different from John. Um, see, there was a time where Jesus accepted this tax collector to be one of his disciples. He comes across Matthew, and he says, Matthew, come be one of my disciples. Now, as a tax collector, they were thieves back then. And so no doubt John hears about Jesus accepting this, this thief to be his disciple, and that's different from what John would have done. See, John would have told that thief to repent and turn from his wicked ways. Jesus says, come follow me. Wait, that, that doesn't seem like the Son of God would do something like that. And then when he, he accepts this thief, this tax collector, to be one of his followers, he then goes over Matthew's house where Matthew has a party and the Bible says that sinners and tax collectors came and Jesus ate and drank with them. Jesus is partying with sinners. And John hears about this, no doubt, and he's like, wait, 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 this is not becoming of the Son of God. This is not something that the Savior would do. So he starts to have doubts. And he, and he sends some messengers to Jesus to say, hey, are, are you the one are, are you the son of God or, or is there somebody else? And the, the reason is, is because John sees the methods Jesus uses to reach people and he misses the message. Here's, here's what it says in Matthew chapter 11, verse two. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? Because again, this doesn't seem like something a savior would be doing. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. 
The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now this is so brilliant, because John has some doubts, and he says, are you the one? And Jesus gives evidence. He says, I want you to look at what I'm doing. Look at the people who couldn't see and now they see. Look at the people who had leprosy and now they're healed. Look at the people who are dead and now they're raised again. I want you to look at the evidence of what I'm doing. And don't get so caught up on the method that you miss the message. Don't, don't get so caught up on, you might not do it this way, but you're not doing it, I am. Don't get caught up on, well, I wouldn't do it that way, I'm doing it and here's the results, here's what's happening. You know, sometimes we as people can allow our preference to prevent us from perceiving what God is accomplishing through someone's performance. I hope you didn't miss it with all the peace. Sometimes we can allow our preference to prevent us from perceiving what God is accomplishing through someone else's purpose because we say, well, I, I, I don't really like that. That's not what I would really do. I don't really care for that. And, and, and people say this all the time. You know, sometimes we'll have a, a, a video sermon. Uh, sometimes we'll, we'll do things a little different there. And I've heard people who come from other churches where maybe they have a, a video or whatever. And they'll come and they'll say, you know, I don't like that church. I stopped going there because they got video sermons. And I don't really relate with that. I don't really connect with it. I want to see somebody live. I don't really relate with the video. But on that, I just want to call bull crap. Because you relate with Jack... You relate with Kate and Randall and Kevin and Mandy Moore on This Is Us because you're sitting on your couch shedding tears, what, to a video? I don't really relate to a video. Yes, you do. That's why you spend money to go watch movies. See, sometimes we will miss the message because we get so focused on the method. Well, I just don't really like that. I don't, that's not my preference. I, I, I heard this um, recently. It's so bizarre to me. There are some people who are um, uh, too religious for their own good, high and mighty. Uh, now, they don't go to church anywhere, but people have said, hey, you should come to our church. We meet at the Norva. They don't go to church anywhere. And, and, and they, they have said, uh, the Norva? How can you have church in an unholy place like that? Okay, first of all, you're not going to church anywhere. Second of all, who said that a church building that's zoned as a church building is a holy place? It's just zoned that way with the city. See, what makes a place holy is when the people show up. What makes a place holy is when you and I come. Yes, there might be some unholy, immoral things that happen here, but when we show up on Sunday, we redeem it. See, for the people who say, I don't know if I could go to a place like that for church, that's fine. We baptized 54 people last year because we met in this unholy place. Sometimes people will get so caught up in the method that they miss out on the message. Well, I don't like some of the songs that we sing. We do those cover songs and shouldn't we? Hey, we're reaching people. Well, I don't like some of those worship. I don't like some of them either, but it's not about me. It's not about my preference. It's about, is it reaching people? Then let's do it. See, what you need to understand is as a church, we will be aggressive at reaching people. We will stop at nothing to reach people. We will do everything short of sin 
to reach people because I don't have time to get caught up in somebody's preference or the method that they prefer because people are on their way to hell and we exist to snatch them from that path and put them on the highway to heaven to let them know there is a God who loves you regardless of who you are and where you've been and what you've done. Jesus said, blessed are those who don't stumble on account of me. John, I know you wouldn't be hanging out with sinners and tax collectors like I am, but I am because I got to reach them. I came for a purpose. So John has some doubts. And I want you to note that Jesus' response to John is not what I just said. That's what I would have said if I was Jesus. Thank God I'm not Jesus. That's probably what you would have said too. He would have probably defended himself. He probably would have said, what's wrong with you? Why are you doubting? Don't you know me? We grew up together. You're the one who baptized me. You saw the spirit of God descend on me. You heard God speak directly from heaven. What is wrong with you doubting me? But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, here's what he does to John the doubter. Matthew eleven eleven. truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He turns to the crowd who has heard the doubts and he says, John, look at the evidence of what's happening. Let me remind you of what's taking place. I know you're in the darkness of that prison cell. Let me remind you of the light of what's going on here. Let's look at the evidence. And now he pays, he pays this great compliment to John. Oh, let me tell you about how awesome John is. There's no one among women who's been born who's greater than he is. He pays John a compliment. He meets John in the midst of his doubt, gives him the evidence he looks for, and then he compliments him. This is what God does for the doubters. Here's another story. Uh, there was another time in Jesus' ministry where this dad comes to Jesus and his son has a demon. He's like demon-possessed. And uh, maybe you hear that and you're like, see, that's why I don't believe in the Bible, talking about demon possession and all this. Listen, I get it. That might be a hard thing for you to believe in, demon possession, but that's just because you hadn't met some people's kids. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but this kid is demon-possessed, like for real. And so the, the, the dad comes to Jesus and he's like, can you help him? Because that's what Jesus does. Jesus helps people. And so Mark chapter 9, verse 21, Jesus asked the boy's father, well, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. Verse 22, it's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Did you catch what the dad said to Jesus? Because Jesus caught it. Look, verse 23, if you can, I, I'm sorry, you came to me for help. You're saying if if I can, everything is possible for one who believes. Now, if I'm the dad in this moment, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to like not respond the way he responds. I'm going to say, whoa, wait, no, if, I didn't say if, I said since. Since you can, I know that you can. I wouldn't have come to you if I didn't know that you can. Of course you can. I believe. But, but this is what the dad says. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. He's like, I, I do believe, but I don't believe. I, I don't know what I believe, but, but can you just help me? And Jesus doesn't scold the boy's dad. He doesn't say, what's wrong with you? He doesn't say, get away from me and come back when you fully believe. Instead, he meets the man in the midst of his doubt and delivers. He heals his son because God is for the doubters. One more story. Um, 
there's this famous doubter in the scriptures, his name is Thomas. Uh, he's so famous for doubt that he's actually called Doubting Thomas by a lot of people. And uh, Thomas did a lot of great things as one of Jesus' followers, so he gets a bad rap with this nickname Doubting Thomas because one time he doubted. One time! And now he's doubting Thomas forever. But what happened was Thomas spent time with Jesus. He, he was with him for three years. He learned from him. He heard him teach. He, he spent time with him. He hung out with him. And he heard Jesus say over and over again, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be buried. And then I'm going to raise again from the dead. He heard that. And sure enough, that's what happened. Jesus was arrested. He was crucified. He was buried. But three days later, he rose again from the dead. And Jesus showed himself to his disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. Jesus appeared to the rest of his followers, but Thomas missed out. And then the disciples go to Thomas and they say, hey, guess what? We saw him. He rose again from the dead. Like he was dead and now he's alive. We saw him. And here's what Thomas says. Found in John chapter 20, verse 25. He said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas said, I don't believe you. You said he's alive, I doubt it, I doubt it. What he's saying is, you're liars. You're saying you saw him and you're telling me he's alive, I think you're lying to me. Not only is he calling the disciples liars, his friends liars, but he's also calling Jesus a liar. Because Jesus said, I'm gonna be crucified and I'm gonna come back from the dead. And Thomas said, I don't think so. Unless I see him, unless I have proof, I won't believe. You ever had somebody call you a liar? What'd you want to do to him? What if you were the son of God and you could do anything to him? What would you do? <laughs> yeah. Lightning bolt to the face. But Jesus doesn't do that. It says a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. He set his freaking alarm. By the way, I hate that. Hate that. Sorry, my alarm didn't go off. Yes, you didn't set it. There's not a demon in your phone. Make it, sorry, pet peeve. Sorry, I was late. I didn't show up. My alarm didn't go off. Whatever. So Thomas set his alarm. He's there. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, come here, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. But then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, Thomas, yeah. Thomas had doubts. And Jesus shows up and he says, okay, I'm going to give you the proof and the evidence to erase your doubts. He doesn't say, what's wrong with you? He doesn't say, get away from me. He doesn't say, you spent three years with me and you still don't believe. No. He gave him the evidence and the proof that he needed to believe. But then he said, blessed are those who haven't seen me, who haven't seen the proof, who aren't certain and still believe. Because the truth is, each and every one of us is believing in something. All of us are placing our faith in something. Each and every one of us is placing our faith in something. None of us live by certainty. 
I'll show you what I mean. If I were to tell you that I have an orange ball that's two inches in diameter in my hand, how many of you know that for certain? None of you, because you haven't seen it. There's no way that you can know for certain. Now, I could ask, how many of you believe that there's an orange ball two inches in diameter in my hand? How many of you would say, I believe that? Raise your hand. Okay, some of you. How many of you would say, I don't believe that? Raise your hand. Okay, there's a lot of you not participating. All right. <laughs> this isn't all skate. Let's try it again. How many of you would say, I believe there's a ball in his hand? Okay, how many of you say, I don't believe it? Yeah, it's two inches, all right. So now, that's the best you can do is believe because you don't know. Now, you can put the evidence together. You can say, well, I did see him reach inside of his pocket. He did seem to pull something out. He seems like a pretty credible guy. You can look at my word and say, maybe he's not trying to deceive us. I believe there's a two-inch ball in his hand. Maybe you say, I don't believe it. Because, yeah, he reached in his pocket, but maybe he's trying to fool us. And he said it's two inches in diameter. Well, a pool ball is two and a half inches in diameter. There's no way you can conceal a pool ball in your hand like that. So I think he's lying. Either way, it's about belief. You're placing your faith in something, whether I have the ball or not. Now, with your faith, you could say, hmm, I believe there's a ball, but maybe there isn't. You could start to have doubts. You could say, I don't believe there's a ball, and you could start to have doubts. And whether or not, uh, and, and depending on which one you let out will sway how you live. So if you believe I have a ball here, but you have some doubts and I don't really know, uh, if you allow your doubts to win out, you'll change your position. If you believe I don't have a ball here and you're like, I don't know, maybe he does, and you allow your doubts to win out, you'll change your position. It's fine to have doubts, we all have doubts, but the question is, do we allow our doubts to win out? Here, let me show you, let me show you another way. So, um, how many of you have plans tomorrow? Yeah, you have plans for next week? I want you to think about your plans for next week. Whatever it is you're planning, it's faith. Because here's the thing, you don't even know if tomorrow's gonna come. You're not guaranteed that. That's not a certainty. You're having faith in what you're gonna do tomorrow. You have no idea if your plans are gonna take place. You're placing your faith in that. See, we all place faith in something, whether you believe in God or not, and it's not just about God, it's about all sorts of things in life. And sometimes we think, well, doubt is the opposite of faith, it's not. I wanna show you the opposite of faith. Here's the opposite of faith. Certainty, certainty. When you know something, you don't need to have faith anymore because you've seen it. Because we say that seeing is believing, is that right? When you see something, you don't need to believe, you don't need to have faith because you've seen that the ball is in the hand, right? Now, how many of you believe that there's a ball in my hand? You don't need to believe it because you've seen it. You've seen me put the ball in my hand. Okay, wait, <laughs> um, okay, hold on, uh, let's see. Now you're wondering, how did he do it? Here, I'll show you how I did it, watch. Again, seeing is believing, what I do is I take the ball, the ball goes in the pocket, not really, I hold onto it, then I grab onto the second ball, I put them both in the hand, if you were to guess, now you know, you've seen. Okay, wait, hold on, um, 
Maybe seeing isn't believing. Let's see, one ball goes here in the pocket, the next ball goes here in the hand, the other ball goes in the pocket. How many balls are in the hand? You've seen it now. There's, wait, why are we talking about balls? There's, <laughs> see, thanks. I'm available for your kid's birthday party if you like. No, but see, but see, but see. Sometimes we think seeing is believing and it's certainty, but the truth is, even if you are certain, you're still placing your faith in something. Jesus said, blessed are those who believe and still haven't seen. Blessed are those who believe and, and aren't certain, who still have some doubts. And I wonder if he says this because God's ultimate goal might not be for you to believe in him, but for you to love him. I believe that God's ultimate goal is not for you necessarily to believe in him, but to love him. You have a five-year-old daughter, and um, she's awesome, and uh, every once in a while, well, often I'll tell her, hey, I love you, and uh, she'll respond back to me, and she'll say, oh, I love you too, daddy, uh, but you know the best moments are when she's coloring, and she stops unprovoked, puts her crown down, looks over at me, and says, I love you, daddy. Oh, my heart melts, and I have a this is us moment, and the tears come out. <laughs> yes, I love you too. <laughs> Oh, it's the greatest. But what if my daughter, out of nowhere, stopped coloring, put her crayon down, looked at me and said, Daddy, I acknowledge you exist. <laughs> what? What? Where's the love? I don't care if you acknowledge that I exist. I already know that I exist. I don't need you to know I exist. I want you to love me. What if God's ultimate goal is not to get you to believe in him, but to love him? Because if God's... If God's ultimate goal was to get you to believe in him, he could do that. God could be this swirling blob up in the sky that every time you go out, you could look up and say, there's God, hey God, and God could look down at you and say, hi human. You know, like if God wanted to, he could make it so you could have no doubts, you would know without, uh, beyond any, any doubt with all certainty that he existed. But if God did that, I don't, I don't think it'd lead me to love him anymore. Like, yeah, there he is. I can see him. He's real. But that doesn't lead to love. God's goal is not necessarily just for you to believe in him, but to love him. And if you have uncertainty about God, I believe that your uncertainty is actually a gift. I believe that your uncertainty is actually a gift. The modern-day atheist philosopher Andre Comte de Sponville, not writing about God, but just writing about human love, talks about the idea that the existence of uncertainty is what makes possible the euphoria of what we call falling in love. And so when you're falling in love with someone, there's that uncertainty there that, that, that leads to that feeling of falling in love. It's like, do they like me? I don't know. I've got to find out. Do I like them? I don't know. Let's find out. And then you, you, you engage in this journey, and then it's like, do they love me? I hope so. I don't know. Do I love them? I think so, maybe. Oh, man, could we spend the rest of our life together? I don't know. Let's talk about it. Do you want to spend the rest of your life with me? Should we get married? I don't. And there's this, this whole thing of falling in love, and oh, it's so great. We talk about the honeymoon stage. We talk about being in love. That's why some people, oh, and if you say this, please, dear God, stop. This is why some people, they say, well, you just got married, good for you, wait till 10 years from now. <laughs> Listen, I'm sorry, your marriage sucks, but don't wish it on everybody else. It doesn't have to be that way. 
Because love isn't just a feeling, love is an action, you gotta work at it. But there's this falling in love, there's this uncertainty, I don't really know. It's like, wait, 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 is there really a God? I don't know, let me find out. Wait, could this God really like me? Like the scriptures, I don't know. Could I like God? Does God really love me? Really? Because I know me and I don't love me, but could he love me? Let me find out. And, And do I love God? I can be in a relationship with this God? Let me find out. He wants to be in a relationship with me. And there's this feeling of, of love, this euphoria, and it all stems from uncertainty, it all stems from doubt, and this is why when people make the decision to be baptized, when people finally make that breakthrough and they say, yes, I wanna give God my life, there's this, whoa, kind of, and it starts with uncertainty and doubt. I believe that God gives us the uncertainty we have to pull him, to pull us closer to him. If you doubt, there's nothing wrong with you. You're in good company because all sorts of people have doubted. But don't allow your uncertainty to lead you to complacency. Allow your uncertainty to push you to discover more, to understand, to draw closer to God. See, it starts with this whole God thing. Uh, is, he, is he real? Does he really love me? And ultimately, God's goal is to bring us to a love relationship with him. And the only reason we can love him is because he first loved us. It's 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. And I want to give you the evidence. I want to give you the proof that God loves you. It's seen 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus. See, God first loved us and to prove his love for you, to erase all your doubts, to give you certainty of his love for you, God put on flesh and was born of a virgin and was named Jesus. Colossians 2.9 says, for in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. This means that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And so Jesus was a real person who really lived 2,000 years ago. It's backed by eyewitnesses. It's backed by historical evidence. Jesus really lived, and he lived a perfect life, one that we can't live, and he really did say that he was God. So you have to do something with that. He said in John 10, 24, it says, the Jews who were there gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you. But you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. And then in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So he came to live a perfect life. He said, I am God. And he explained the reason why he came. John 3, 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. See, Jesus was lifted up on a cross to bear your sin and my sin, the sin that separates us from God. And in 1 John 2, 2, it says, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And what happened was Jesus stretched out his arms to pay the penalty that separated us from God. He died the death we deserve because in order to be forgiven, he needed to make a sacrifice. So Jesus was crucified, he was killed, he was buried, but three days later, he resurrected from the dead. First Corinthians 15, one. Now brothers and sisters, I wanna remind you of the gospel I preached to you 
which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Again, you might be in a dark place doubting it right now, but I just want to remind you of what was true in the light. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. Here's the truth, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That verse goes on to say that over 500 people saw him risen. There's evidence. There's eyewitness testimony. And when we believe this, when we believe that Jesus died for us and rose again from the dead, Romans 10, 9 says, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And because of our belief, because we believe this, what we do is we decide to follow God. I believe he died for me and rose again from the dead. And because of that, I want to follow you. Acts 2.38. Peter said, change your life. Turn to God. So we follow God. And it's in that moment we decide to get baptized. Acts 2.38. Peter said, change your life. Turn to God and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so your sins are forgiven. When we believe in Jesus, following and being baptized into him, then we're raised to new life, true life, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. He, God put on flesh to be evidence and proof for us, to know that he loves us. And Jesus gave his life for us, and he rose again from the dead so that you could believe beyond a shadow of a doubt, so that you could know just how much... God loves you. And I wonder if you've ever made the decision to accept the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. I wonder if you've come to a place in your life where you say, Jesus, I believe that you died for me and rose again from the dead, and I want to follow you and give you my life. If you've never made that decision, I want to give you an opportunity today, in this moment, to do just that. When you came in, you received a note card, and at the bottom of that note card is a perforated section and at the bottom of that, there's a box that says, I want to accept Christ as my Savior and be baptized. If you've never made that decision, I want to invite you to fill out that card, check that box, and drop it off at any of the black tables. we got some people there who would love to talk with you about that decision. And for those of you who have made the decision, in a moment, we're going to receive communion. This is a time where we're reminded yet again of the gift God gave us through His Son. Members from our VIP team are going to come. They're going to pass out trays, and in those trays are stacks of cups. I want to invite you to take a stack of cups. Um, the bottom one has some bread. It reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. The top one has some juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for us. And it's another reminder of the gift God has given us in Christ. It's evidence of how much God loves you. But even with the proof of God's enormous love for you, you may say, um, I need more. I need more. I still have doubts. And if you still have doubts, again, you're in good company because when Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he got his disciples together on top of this mountain. And um, he said, okay, I'm leaving. Spent the past 40 days with you after being resurrected. I'm out. You're going to take this movement to the rest of the world. And here's what Matthew said in Matthew 28. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. But some doubted. After being with Jesus for three years, 
spending time with him, hearing directly from him, seeing him crucified, seeing him resurrect from the dead. Like, I got nothing for you. I rose from the dead, what more can I do? Some of his followers still doubted. If you still have doubts, I wanna encourage you to take a look at the evidence. The evidence seated all around you. The evidence of lives who have been changed by meeting this resurrected Jesus. If you still have doubts, I want to encourage you to look at the evidence of the resurrection by noting that there were eyewitnesses who saw Jesus die and then they saw him alive again. Would you look at the evidence of Paul's life who made it his life mission to kill Christians, but then he met the resurrected Jesus and he became a Christian? Look at the evidence of Paul's life who made it his mission to stamp out the church, but then he met the resurrected Jesus and then he started churches all over the known world. Look at the evidence of James's life. James was the brother of Jesus and he was critical of Jesus. You would be too if your brother said they were the son of God. But then James witnessed the resurrection of Jesus and he became a Christian himself. That doesn't happen unless this is real. Look at the evidence of people all around you who once they met Jesus, their life was forever changed. If you have questions, I wanna give you a couple resources to look at. Three books. One is called A Ready Defense by Josh McDowell. Another one is called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. He also wrote another book called The Case for Faith. And these will lay out historical, literary evidence for Christ, for faith. Again, A Ready Defense by Josh McDowell, The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, and The Case for Faith. You know, Lee Strobel actually was an atheist and he set out to disprove this whole Christianity thing. But in his pursuit, he became a Christian himself because the evidence is overwhelming. If you have doubts, you're in good company because God is for the doubters. But Jesus said, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. If you doubt, God loves you. He loves you and God is for you. Would you pray with me? God, I wanna thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for meeting us in our doubts. For some of us, we say, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief, I'm not really sure. Meet us in the midst of our doubts, God, and bring us to an even greater faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We pray you were inspired and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, sign up to serve on a team, join a group, or just find out more information on The Rising, visit us at wearetherising.com.